Brexit means Brexit. An exit from Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to Debated Podcast, a podcast where we talk about all things politics. I'm Conrad, I'm joined by my usual co-host Will, and our Hello. guest in this episode is Glenn O'Hara, who is a professor of history at Oxford Brookes University. Um, so thank you for joining us, Glenn. Um, before we get into sort of the sort of the discussion, um, just could you mind telling us a bit about what yourself and what, what you do? Well, I suppose I'm a contemporary historian. Uh, I write about the 20th century. I write books about how governments plan, I suppose, how governments choose. You know, like, do you choose to build some motorway or train some nurses? I think that's a very difficult question, which I write lots about, although I don't think I have any answers. And most recently, I've been writing about opinion polling and how divided we are as a society and uh, where we're going, although I don't actually know where we're going. (laughs) I don't think anyone does. (laughs) <laughs> no, that's probably true yeah yeah um so obviously one thing that's sort of up in the air at the moment is brexit um and there's obviously the conservative leadership election going on do you think that either of the candidates do what they're doing do you think either of them have a have a plan no uh i would be very surprised indeed if either of them had a plan um i mean because there are so many plans to have aren't there um, what they're trying to do, I suppose, is have enough creative ambiguity to just get through, get into number 10, and then try and use the machinery. Uh, however, I think there, there probably isn't any machinery, uh, not only in Brexit, but in general terms. You know, the, the powers of the Prime Minister are so circumscribed these days that, to what extent it's getting into number 10 meaningful at all, I'm not sure. <laughs> this is not going to be, you know, that uplifting, I suspect, is my, my view. Fair <laughs> uh, um, enough, yeah. Do you think that, um, given the way that you have sort of like looked at opinion polling, and I'd be interested to see how um, Conrad reacts to your opinion, um, that you, you, you seem to believe that there is a, a strong possibility of a Labour minority government at the next election. Do you think that Boris Johnson could conceivably win a general election and win it with a large enough mandate to govern as he would wish? Well, that's always possible. Um, and I certainly would not rule that out because he's a deeply unscrupulous operator. and He's much cleverer than he would like you to think by talking about, you know, painting crates as buses or whatever. <laughs> um, because he will go for a very populist and in some ways, I suppose, a very nasty campaign at the same time as his policies are much more crowd pleasing and much more centrist than the disastrous campaign Theresa May ran in 2017. So that is definitely possible. He also has something about him which just sucks all the energy out of everybody else's campaign, like Trump. Mm. So it is definitely possible. And we're already at a YouGov poll today showing a little bit of Tory know, Tory upward movement. And, you know, unbelievably, the Conservatives are ahead of Labour in that poll. Most, most inexplicable to me that that could even be possible. So it is possible. However, Tories are under attack from every single side. And Ian Warren, who people can read or follow on Twitter as election data, talks about this a lot. The Liberal Democrats are a huge threat to the Tories mm. across the south of England, across white-collar professional workers, across kind of liberal, centrist 
mainstream people and Boris makes that situation worse. Um, so being under attack from Brexit Party in one direction, Liberal Democrats in another. And there are there are switches from Tory to Green. There are switches from tiny numbers of switches of Tory to Labour or indeed uh, Tory to small party to abstention. So I just find it impossible to believe that Boris can reach the majority of what he would need. 50-60? Yeah. 40-50? Um, that looks just a huge, gargantuan ask, doesn't it? Yeah, cool. um, I mean, so I was at the um, hustings the other day and um, helping out the Boris campaign and, and we were giving out these leaflets which actually have um, seat predictions based on a Comrades 11th of June poll, which is now 199 seats at the current polling. And with Boris 395, um, I'm not quite sure of the value necessarily of one poll, which obviously prompts the leader, compared to what it would be like in an actual scenario. But um, in terms of actually winning a majority, um, or even like anything close to a majority, I think the votes lost to the Brexit party, it, by, in a tactical sense, have got to be the focus, because... That's where, like, seventy percent of Conservative voters voted Leave. I think that's got to be where them we're most worried about losing votes to, rather than oh, them. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I think it might well be that a Boris Premiership, albeit short-lived one, might be the best way of the Conservatives getting out of this in one piece. So even if they go into opposition and they have two hundred and fifty seats, or whatever it might be, that at least means they avoid a huge seismic split on the scale of the 1840s or 1902 and they come out whole and then they're able to come back into office when Labour fall apart over the same issue, Brexit. So it may well be that Boris is the right call. It's just that I don't think he uh, appeals to people in places where you might want to appeal. So if you look at the geography of those Leave voters, they might not help you in marginal seats because we're not just talking about losing to Lib Dems in Guildford or wherever it might be or Surrey Heath where you'd lose a lot to Lib Dems. We're also talking about losing small numbers of Lib voters to Lib Dems in marginal seats where you're fighting Labour, or indeed why the Brexit party might take them. So it's a complex landscape. I also don't think we should put too much strength on kind of what-if polls, because there's another opinion poll which doesn't show that big uplift, or it shows a modest uplift, which is what I would expect. He would, he will have some opportunity to reintroduce himself and, and voters, British voters are pretty fair minded in that they'll allow him to set out his stall. And he, he will be surrounded by people who want him to say, I'm a liberal centrist Tory, which, you know, we all know that he's to some extent in private he is. But don't get me wrong, I think it's possible that Boris can, can help the Tories. It's just that my, my view is probably that the way he helps them is to get their boats off the beaches without getting them all blown to pieces. Mm. I think it's, it's interesting um, what you've said about him acting as a force almost as uh, to, to keep the core of the Conservative Party uh, alive, yeah. even if it goes into opposition. I wondered, you've written quite a lot about Tony Blair, and I've seen some recent comparisons between Boris and Tony Blair. Some people <laughs> saying that he's sort of like... Uh, the, the Blair of the centre-right. Do you think that's accurate at all? Um, yes, well, no, firstly. Uh, <laughs> no, because, no, because um, Blair had the ability to reach out to unexpected places uh, when he was Prime Minister and, and latterly 
in his period as leader of the opposition. He could reach out to suburban voters who hadn't voted Labour perhaps for 20 or 30 years. Mm. In his present incarnation, unlike his 2008 incarnation as becoming mayor of London, Boris doesn't have that. He is very, very unpopular with Remainers. He's incredibly unpopular with the kind of people who Tories once, high-income people who Tories once would have taken for granted. So electorally, no, because he is uh, divisive. And Blair was able to get you know, 44% of the vote in 1997. However, there might be a bit of, strangely to me, because I'm not a fan, as you can tell, um, strangely to me, he might have something of the kind of stardust of a big beast politician, which is what Conservatives desperately hope, isn't it? That he just has the ability to mm. bend light almost towards himself because he's the gravity gravity uh, caster in the room a bit like big beasts like Barrett Blair or indeed Gordon Brown I'm I think that's true if you like his brand of politics if you don't like it then you really really don't like it and uh, the, the comparison I think is more with with Donald Trump in that if you are a liberal cosmopolitan outward looking you know self-defined voter you, you think of yourself as someone who's seen through the trick and then you really really loathe him and it's difficult to imagine him bringing those voters back. Mm. The gamble, I suppose, is that he, he pushes deep into Labour territory in, you know, Don Valley, Grimsby. He, the Tories win those seats that they missed out on just really narrowly and they should have won in 2017. I guess that's more of the gamble where I would see the opportunities be. And um, what do you think of sort of Jeremy Hunt's prospects if he were to, and it looks quite unlikely now, but you never know, if he were to become Prime Minister and Conservative leader, do you think he has any electoral impact? Well, a little bit, because any new Prime Minister does. And as I've said, I think that, that they're bound to be something of a hump of a new leader. You do get a fresh mandate and a fresh opportunity to cast your team. However, I think the problem Hunter's got is that his offer is less distinct, isn't it? Because although he's open to no deal, he's not going hell for leather for no deal. And what's going to happen is, might happen to Boris indeed, which is that he will be stuck on the European Union simply saying no in October. And he has had a much less hard line on that. It's also difficult to see what the gamble is, because if, if his gamble is that he will appeal to more centrist or more liberal minded, I think the better phrase, more liberal minded voters or Remainers, does he really do that? Because actually he's still saying we want to leave. So I think that he, although he probably, I mean, he's showing in this a, a rather better campaigner. He seems rather more uh, of a kind of, he feels like, and he looks more like the voters that the Tories need. He sounds like them, uh, which is, like Blair, important. Equally, uh, so he has perhaps more opportunity to reach out there. But what's his line? What's his offer? That just seems cloudy to me. Um, what do you think is the long-term future of the Labour Party? Because, of course, <laughs> Bre- Bre- well, <laughs> Brexit has um, severely damaged sections of the Labour Party. The scandals over anti-Semitism and a multitude of other things have also damaged it. Yeah. Where do you think the Labour Party will be going in the future? <laughs> I don't. The first answer is I don't know. Um, <laughs> The second answer is I think that there, there's, a, there's an over-obsession with Corbynism in this discussion. Because although Corbynism and uh, Brexit 
accelerate trends in labour's development, they are not the reason for them. Mm. So really, labour has been becoming, for a long time, party of the cities, party of liberal voters, the party of graduates, party of BME communities, and it has been moving away from what it was, which was a party of working-class blue-collar England, uh, and a party of small towns, where very, very, very strong cultural and philosophical, sociological trends are moving Labour away from those voters, and they're moving towards voters that you know wouldn't have considered them for 2010, maybe. Which is why they thought they were doing so badly in 2017, because they couldn't see in their canvas and their offer the voters who were going to vote for them. So the the first thing to say is Labour has a series of long-term challenges, and probably probably what Remainer and pro-European Labour MPs are saying at the moment is, look, we just have to throw our lot in with the Britain that is the emergent Labour Britain, and lose some of the seats in the north of England, especially the where we've had those seats for generations. So the first the first point about the future Labour Party is that it is becoming the party of urban Britain. Mm. And it may be that that is not uh, turnaroundable. It's a horrible phrase, isn't it? It might be that's not a reversible <laughs> phenomenon. Uh, that's number one. I can, I've probably got a long list. So you <laughs> have you asked me some more questions? Do you think the realignment that we sort of that you sort of discuss of Labour become more urban, um, is like comparable to what we've seen in America with the urban rural divide and between Republicans and Democrats? Yes, but by by no means nowhere near uh, as extensive or as sharp. So there we see these real, real congregations of voters not only moving together and then becoming red or blue deciding to move together because they are red or blue. You know, people actually deciding to live in, in towns because they're Republican, for instance. And we, we actually see that phenomenon, which we don't see nearly as much here. We don't have the religious aspect here nearly so much. And the race issue about where you live and how you vote is nowhere near as advanced. So I guess what we're seeing is the American phenomenon, but in a much more watery fashion, because we're not as divided Americans. And indeed, I think what I'd say is that although Leave and Remain is a big divide, we are actually, well, have more in common than that which divides us, Joe Cox said. Actually, Britons agree on a huge amount of things. So so yes and no is the the typical academic answer to that. (laughs) Do you think that um, the problems that are sort of facing um, the centre, perhaps the centre-left, is a... Um, global phenomena. It's not sort of like necessarily just happening in Britain or America. Do you think it's happening around the world? And if you do, why do you think it's happening on sort of a, a global scale? Oh, well, well, yes and no, again, because <laughs> uh, this is the kind of seminar answer. I say, cast out <laughs> students and say, you discuss this book. And the reason I say that is I don't know the answer. <laughs> And you know, as Rory Stewart said, what we what we don't know is much bigger than what we know. Which it's important to hold that in our hands to say, you know, I don't know. Because anyone who talks about these things and says I know the answer to this is just a liar or charlatan. So, so the first thing is I don't know because there are loads of successful social democratic parties in Portugal, in Denmark, you know, the Norwegian Social Democrats, the Labour Party, their membership hasn't gone down a huge amount. So 
although the, the German SPD and the, the, the French Socialists are in this crisis, the British Labour Party is, is shedding votes at a huge rate, but it could be in government in the autumn. Mm. So there are su- successful examples of social democracy. But the reason that they are in crisis is really, for me, it's, well, what, what are their ideas? What are they for? How do they think that we will get out of the age of globalisation with social cohesion intact, with less inequality, uh, for instance? And their answers are quite watery. So you look at the Lib Dems or Change UK, uh, who are, you know, phenomena of the centre left or the centre, and their answers are, are technical. They probably would yield results, but they're not very technicolor and they're not very uh, headline grabbing. In an age where Trump just grabs the headlines or Boris just grabs the headlines. So social democrats are just in, in crisis really about what they're for. So someone like me would say, well, abolishing tuition fees will make inequality, income inequality worse. Right. And we need a graduate tax or we need lower fees at a much better interest rate. Okay, government putting in more of the, more of the resource. So that's a very, Mm -hmm. that's a very technocratic thing to say. That's a really, really boring and ineffectual campaign headline. (laughs) You know, probably a majority of British voters would just like tuition fees scrapped. That would be disastrous for English universities. But, uh, but it, but my case isn't a very sexy case, is it? (laughs) Yes, that's what, that's what's going on for me. Um, so going on to sort of we go from the centre left to sort of a more right wing populist party. Do you think the um, do you think the Brexit party's got um, prospects of making a breakthrough either like in the by election that's coming up or in the um, in, if there was an autumn election? Not so much in Brecon and Radnor, although I haven't looked very closely at that seat because that to me is an absolutely almost certain Liberal Democrat gain. And I wouldn't have said that about Peterborough. I would have said that was on a knife edge, which indeed it, it turned out to be. Um, the Lib Dems have had that seat for a long time. They hold that seat in the Welsh Assembly. They have a long Welsh tradition, Welsh liberal tradition to draw on. Uh, they're on the up. They're hugely on the up. So not in, in Brecon and Radnorshire. But I think in, in a general election, we have to, we absolutely have to say that they could win a huge number of seats. Although UKIP didn't, and although we... Uh, have seen this time and again that Farage parties miss out. You look at the polling and you look at the Peterborough result um, and you look at the some of the deeper polling, the attitudinal polling or who people think would win seats. You look at the situation if we didn't leave on 31st of October. You've got to say that they could win some seats. Now, it probably won't look anything like you know typing that into uh, an electoral forecasting website and saying, oh, they're going to be 200 seats. Yeah. But the, again, the, like Tory's problem with Remainers, the Brexit party has the advantage that really strong levers are geographically not spread out evenly. So they have more opportunity to make a, a breakthrough than Change UK did, for instance, or the SDP in 1981-82, because their, they, their voters are somewhere. So, so I think the answer is yes, they could easily make a breakthrough. Uh, but just again, don't know what the situation will be on the day people go in. Um, you mentioned um, the uh, the d- different geography of Brexit voters, and um, you've written quite a bit about Britain's 
maritime history and the importance of it. And Brexit has raised quite a, an amount of questions about fishing and our relationship to the sea. How important do you still think the sea is to Britain's political and cultural identity? Oh, again, that's a huge question. Well, <laughs> I think I think in some ways it's not because we've removed ourselves from the sea in a huge number of ways. So, you know, look at the number of workers in ports and docks. They're really, really tiny because of the containerization revolution since the 60s, where you, you really don't need a huge amount of people to do this work. And, and really, we've withdrawn from maritime labour. However, I think there is an element of uh, what Churchill said to de Gaulle, if you, if you force us to choose between Europe and the, de- and, and the deep sea, we'll choose the oceans. Mm. And although I, I really honestly wouldn't go too far in this case that a lot of people make that this leave vote is a, is a nostalgic empire 2.0, yeah. I think it is one strand within many strands that the British, British, the British imaginative geography of their hinterland is still Australia, New Zealand, for instance, about where they would move if they emigrated. And that conscious view of what their, their outer world is, is really, really still important however you can you can exaggerate this as i say you know loads of Britons live in spain but they don't imagine spain as their as their hinterland their imaginative Mm. so so it it is still important but it can be exaggerated in some of this rhetoric about oh this is all baby boomers obsessed about the empire i think leave is much more interesting yeah, no. I mean, if you look at obviously there are like the coastal areas, a lot of them. I mean, I'm from the Isle of Wight, that oh, was yes. a leave area. And then if you look at sort of some of the biggest ones, it's like Boston, Grimsby, those kind of areas that are on the um, on the coast. So I don't know if that's a, something that's been looked into in terms of the correlation there, but um, no, I can I, I can see sort of it's sort of like the I guess the fishing the fisher policy is one of one of the aspects there, but there's also there might well, be like subliminal things as well um well i mean fishing is fishing is important in terms of electorally and in terms of leave in the northeast of scotland hmm. and you see this in michael gove talking about this and that's, that's of course where he's from the the correlation to maritime areas in england is about age which is of course that this is a this is a lot older um what's the word uh, liminal hinterland of of england so it's, it's got a much older electorate and also, of course, it's about poverty. So you've got, which is that these areas often have declined markedly for lots of economic and social reasons, economically. So you've got two ends of the leave electorate there. You've got low-income people, frustrated low-income people, and older, perhaps wealthier Britons. So you're making a kind of perfect storm for leave in those towns. Do you think that um, part of the problem with government at the moment <laughs> is that it's too centralised? That if there was more devolvement uh, of government to areas, you know, like the Isle of Wight or, say, for instance, Grimsby or yeah. uh, the North East, do you think that people would become more active in government? And do you think government would be more reactive to issues that are faced in the country in those particular areas? I'm not sure people would become more active. I think the state would definitely become more responsive and the state would be more successful and seen to be more successful. I mean, I wrote about this when the independent group launched in the Guardian about how we should have much more devolution. So, you know, something people have been talking about a lot is that Leeds, for instance, Leeds and Bristol are quite big cities, have absolutely pathetic public transport infrastructures. 
Mm. Now, there's no way that a city in North America wouldn't, for instance, raise a bond or wouldn't borrow in order to change that, to have a tram system or a light rail system, for instance, like Sheffield mm-hmm. and Manchester. So I definitely, definitely think that one of the things that we need, and Osborne, George Osborne grasped at this, although ineffectually, because he in some ways didn't mean it, you need much stronger devolution to especially England's regions. The, the, the UK's government, which effectively domestically is England's government, is just not able to handle some of these issues, mm. especially with Brexit, potentially second Brexit referendum, potentially second Indy ref in Scotland, uh, potentially a border poll in Northern Ireland. That is going to burn up the British government for the next five to ten. So actual people's lives, you know, we're living through a crisis of school funding, we're living through mm-hmm. a crisis of uh, elderly care, social care locally, are just, are just not going to be lifted up in the way that but for all the ills of those governments, that the, the Blair Brown years affected big changes in those areas that actually affected people's day-to-day lives in a positive manner. Uh, obviously, you just you just mentioned the uh, the Blair Brown government. Now you're writing um, a book about the Blair government. Mm-hmm. How do you think the average person regards Tony Blair's time in government? Well, I think I think there you probably have to differentiate between the man and the government. Mm-hmm. The man is pr- pretty, pretty unpopular. Now that's often yeah. about, if you look at YouGov, it's, 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 is it minus 40, minus 50 or something? Yeah. Like that, you can have a look. Um, and he is perceived to be someone who had high promise, but not the delivery. Uh, but that, of course, focuses often on the foreign policy questions, which we know mm-hmm. about, Iraq, Iraq etc. I think the actual, the actual record of Blair Brown in government, is much more favourable to see. And I'll be doing some work on this in the next two or three years when I'm writing the book. Because people know and people feel that sure starts or cancer waiting lists being pretty much abolished uh, in the latter part of that era were very effective because they feel that in the disintegration of some of the areas of the public sphere now. Mm-hmm. Because the last nine years have seen some of these achievements taken. So I think although he is not Although he's done himself some good with Remainers over the last two or three years, the the era is seen as mediocre to all right, which given how bad things are being now, is probably, it's only going to grow that that sense that this was a decent time. Mm -hmm. Remember, this was a time of strong real wage growth, which we haven't had since 2008 at all. So... um, in, in many ways, effective, I suppose, is, is the answer. But, but on the other hand, I think a lot of voters perceive not as good as the promise. Should have done more. Yeah. Um, what's the uh, the research process for the book been like? I mean, have you contacted people from the Blair administration? And if so, how forthcoming have they been about talking about it? Well, actually, although I haven't done any interviews yet, actually, I put out a call on Twitter and I had quite a few people straight away just saying, oh, yes, I'm quite happy to come come and talk to me. Let's come and have a chat. Let's have a coffee or whatever. Let's have lunch or whatever it is. So that was really, really nice. I mean, I wrote the pamphlet for the Blair Institute about the Blair government, which I hope was a critical look at the domestic front. And I'll, I'm hoping to use some of the contacts there with the staff there to, to, to contact people. I mean, it won't be by any means a kind of utopian view of those governments because they mm-hmm. had massive problems and they got... They got big things wrong, but I think it requires a correction now, 
given the historiography, particularly on the left, that these governments had massive, massive achievements, which previous Labour governments just had not been able to affect. So I think people are keen to talk. It's that kind. Of, it's that kind of time, isn't it? We're looking ten years ahead. We're looking ten yeah. years yeah. Since, since Brown left office. We're looking at Labour really in turmoil about where it's going ideologically. And it's a time to reflect. You know, I hope. I hope what will be a balanced way. Well, it's been great to talk to you today. It's um, been cool. a really interesting conversation. Um, yeah. Just kind of at the end of the podcast now. Um, so one last question. We found out recently that um, Boris Johnson likes to paint wooden buses in his spare time. What do you like to do to relax? <laughs> I furiously and angrily tweet about the Labour Party. Uh, <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually go walking. I've just completed the South West Coast Path, uh, which not in one go, I hasten to add, but in, in one week sections with my friends. And what I would say about that is, uh, and I'm going to be writing about this in the future, what I would say about that is, is Britain's national trails are an, an incredible resource and Britain's paths and, and non-national trails um, are a fantastic way of just getting out there. So with my positive and optimistic hat on, get out there and get into the, get into the urban environment or get into the rural environment, but get out there and, and experience life at two or three miles an hour. That's how I like to get away from politics well that's a nice note to end it on so um thank you everyone for listening um if you want to get in contact we are on facebook debated podcast or on twitter as well debated podcast or you can email the debated podcast at gmail.com and we look forward to um next week's episode <laughs>